Hello and welcome back to Life-Giving Habits from Seven Vineyard, where we are looking at things Jesus did and asking if we do them too, can we become more like Jesus? And so, can they become life-giving habits for us? Today, Mal Caladine looks at vulnerability, including the power of it, and Mal points to a TED Talk by Brenny Brown called The Power of Vulnerability as a recommended listen too. And Mal had a lot to share here in April 2016, so it's presented over two talks, and this is the first. I wanted to look at a life-giving habit that some people think is about being weak. So before we look at what it is to how, what does it look like to live into being strong, this month we're looking at the idea, the habit of vulnerability. What does it mean to be vulnerable? If you want to know the Easter story, Colossians... Uh, sorry, Philippians 2 said, your, your attitude, your lifestyle should be the very same as that of Christ Jesus, who didn't consider equality something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, literally emptied himself. So that's what we're saying is before we look at being strong, our attitude should be like that of Jesus, of what does it mean to be what does it live into the hows of being vulnerable? Of actually, what does it look like to sow a habit, to put, to put practices in place of, of being vulnerable? So that's what we're going to do. Sound all right? Good. I want to introduce you this morning to two people who are like, uh, the Old Testament talks about men of Issachar, people of Issachar. They were the ones who understood the signs of the times and told the people what to do. And I want to introduce you to two of my heroes, two of the people of Issachar, two guys who I think uh, are in the public eye, are in the mainstream, who are both people of faith. And they both are people who I think understand the sign of the times and uh, encourage people what to do. The first of them is uh, uh, the other half of my life, um, about 60-70% of my time uh, I work with church and then 30% of my time I get to work with wider uh, church movements and leadership teams and all that kind of thing. And I love it. I love getting to work with leaders generally and investing in leaders. And this man, Patrick Lencioni, is a bit of a hero of mine. He's partly a hero because he's got an outrageous sense of humour that you think is completely inappropriate for the business world. Um, he's a hero because he's a man of faith. Um, but this is one of the first things I ever came up uh, of, uh, of his content. And he wrote this book having done lots of research about qualitative not quantitative research, but qualitative. In other words, the quality of our relationships, the quality of how we do, what we do. And he did lots of research on it with his uh, research group. And off the back of it, he wrote this book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Why teams work and why they don't. Now, this was fascinating for me because I get to work with lots of teams. So you're going in going, wow, how are you, you know, what's going on? Are you fitting with this? And that second, that second slide of the, um, of the triangle, of the pyramid, is, are the five dysfunctions. And really, that's the, uh, that's the better later cover, because that's what he's unpacking. Can you go to the next slide? The foundational, the foundational idea that he puts through in his research is that the number one team reason that teams don't work is an absence of trust. So all the other things build on that. 
So a team may trust each other, but then they avoid conflict or they don't commit or there's not accountability or they don't look at results. The foundational issue of every team is if people don't trust each other. Which is interesting, isn't it? And I think it's true. Then they, uh, they did some research into, so what does the leader of that team need to set a culture of if you're going to break through that problem? Can you go to the next slide? And this is what they said, that the leader needed to be vulnerable. That if you actually had a team that had no trust, if you were going to change that status quo, the only way that status quo would be changed would be if the leader was vulnerable. Isn't that interesting? In the other ones, it's like, actually, if you want conflict, a leader has to mine for conflict, <laughs> which I think is fascinating. If, you, if you've got a place that avoids conflict, the leader needs to mine for it. But the number one issue, and I can't tell you how many teams working with this, and why I got interested in this idea of vulnerability, is that if you want to have trust in a setting, it's got to be about a culture of vulnerability. It's fascinating to me as we look at the media through this week. You know, what's happened with David Cameron this week? He's gone from being a preachy, you know, we must stop people who have tax offshore oh, to, oh, I have tax offshore. <laughs> and then this morning, he's published his accounts. He's published his full accounts. His response has actually been quite a vulnerable one. Yeah? You may not agree with his politics or what he's done. And yes, he started, he's, a lot of people don't trust him anymore because he started by being preachy and is he a hypocrite? But now he's shown himself to be vulnerable. The other one that's the key one, I think, in the media over this last couple of days is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Who cares about his parenting? I love that he says, that's not my identity. And my wife and I have had to deal with bigger things like losing our daughter in a car accident than we have had to deal with this. And if you're going to try and assault me with this, I don't really mind. We can have it in the public eye. Yeah, vulnerable man. And I think we're trusting him more because of it. I'm now worried for Chelsea fans with their new manager because I'm not sure that he fits as an analogy of that, but we'll go on to that later. Um, so he's one. So this is why I think it's interesting that there's actually research saying that teams work when people get vulnerable. It's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? We think that we should put our, our barriers up higher. But actually, teams work when people get vulnerable. And this is my second person of Issachar. So the first was, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a she. Um, and uh, I've loved TED Talks. Most of you come across TED? Do you know the number one reason I love TED is I feel like it's redeemed preaching in the wider world that suddenly speaking interestingly and pithily for 15 to 20 minutes has value, has, has massive value that, that changes things. And it's become a culturally acceptable norm. One of the very most popular of, uh, of all of the TED Talks that you can get online is by this lady. Her name is Brené Brown, and um, she's a researcher, and she's also a lady of faith. Um, she's an academic uh, in a Texas university, um, and uh, she's a researcher, 
And she is having a huge effect uh, on, the, on the business world with books like uh, What Kills Love Also Kills Businesses. Isn't that fascinating? She's giving the commercial world a heart again. What Kills Love Also Kills Businesses. Her most popular talk um, on TED is this one, The Power of Vulnerability, that you're enough, that we're made wholehearted, we're called to be wholehearted, and we get there by knowing that we're worthy of love and belonging. Dan didn't know uh, the content of what I was going to talk on this morning. interested me that in the worship from Psalm 100, that's what he focused on, that starting place of that, do we really embrace that, that's, that we are worthy of love and belonging, that we are worthy of love from our Heavenly Father, and that we're worthy of belonging with Him and with people. And that's the culture we want to live into. So what's some of the hows? Just a couple of pointers towards hows. Where are you supposed to initiate? Where are you the one supposed to be initi initiating even where there is a fear associated, a fear of rejection, a fear of shame? Um, we talked about uh, through this week um, quite a lot the idea that we, uh, we are all where... Um, my mum has a really embarrassing dog uh, a poodle, and um, uh, excuse me, and it's uh, uh, this dog uh, is uh, just horrible. Um, <laughs> just there's no redeeming feature about this dog at all. Um, our kids, we've had to talk about the difference between post-fall and pre-fall animals, and we're all agreed that this poodle is post-fall. We originally called it Cerberus, the dog that guards the gates of hell. Um, but now we call it, um, what's it called? Uh, the dog's name, Bella. And uh, uh, it's Belzebub. <laughs> yeah, not to my mother's face. Anyway. <laughs> oh, she's into this. I'm in trouble. Uh, um, but uh, she, she came back from the supermarket saying... Every, uh, she made her dog, she put, paid th thousands of pounds for her dog to, to have an operation, and then the dog wore this. And to the supermarket, she said, everybody kept on coming up to me and pointing at the dog and going, ah, the cone of shame. <laughs> and they were referencing the movie Up. Yeah, and the dog in Up that wears the cone of shame, which I just think is fascinating that we've actually got words for it, and yet we still do it. We've actually are able to talk in our culture about the cone of shame, but where are we supposed to be taking the cone off? Where are we supposed to be taking the cone off ourselves, and where are we supposed to be taking it off others? That's the challenge of the next five to six weeks. The currency at work here, more than anything, is trust. This works with people that you trust. Yeah, going back to that first bit of research by Patrick Lencioni. So it's allowed to be that <laughs> trust is the currency. Yeah, you can put yourself into a situation if you want to where you don't trust somebody, but then you're in the brave ride world, you're on Twitter, 
you're in the world where anybody can shoot you down. The places I'd want to suggest to you to be really trust, uh, where you feel safe and, tr and trusting, where you feel wholehearted, is where you're trusted. You know that movie uh, where Robert De Niro talks about the circle of trust? You are in the circle of trust. <laughs> yeah? It's actually valid as an idea to think about where we feel safe, where we belong, where we know that we are loved and have a sense of belonging is actually where we're able to be most vulnerable. Yeah? And this is the one corrective, just the one almost safety valve I'd want to put into what I believe uh, Brené is talking about as what is just good news, and it's only good news. That is the good news of the gospel right there. This is the verse that's been on our kitchen cupboard for about nine months. Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Our, our lead youth worker may just have written except poo on it at one point. <laughs> um, didn't you? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, and then we just had a deep theological discussion about, no, I think that's still true. <laughs> that's still actually true, that, that poo still flows from our heart when we... Uh, uh, we got, so it actually helped us <laughs> in all kinds of ways. Um, so alongside being vulnerable, there is a call to guard our heart because everything flows from it. So if we're going to be vulnerable, what does guarding your heart look like? And this is what I just want to finish on as we pray and ask the Lord what, what our initial action items are for you to respond to this. Yeah, Is that to guard your heart, to let people into these places, is to put... Is, it is to have boundaries, to have guards around, yeah? But what I want to suggest to you is, is that you have authority and power where there is a gate in that wall that you've guarded, yeah? And it's you who, did, because I think what we can do is, as Christians is that we can just, there are certain people where we think, oh, I just have to let them right into the middle of my heart, Yeah? But actually, all they do is cause me pain. Yeah? I, can, I have to let them in to the middle of my heart. What I want you to hear, you say, hear is, I think from that scripture is, no, you're not. You're not supposed to let anybody in. And the hard thing is having to say this to guys. Um, I, I had to say this to somebody in the last two weeks about their own father is that he thought, because it's his father, even though his father is, is being controlling and abusive, he, he had to let him right in. And it was, no, if you're going to have authority, if you're going to have some power in this situation, if you are going to feel empowered, you need to put a, a, a guard around that. But you work out where the gate is. You work out where the gate is. And if... He then walks through that gate and does what you asked of him. Then he's to this point and you can have a more trusting relationship. But if he doesn't, shut the gate. As, as, as the horse that I was bidding for in the Grand National yesterday, shut the front door. 
Shut the front door. Shut the front door to your heart on those that actually I know all that this is is unhelpful and control and abuse at the moment. And I gave you a gate and you closed it. Yeah? The people we allow into here, this is multi... Do you see that there are multiple walls? The initial... And you can get vulnerable with somebody actually very quickly if they go through all your gates. Do you see what I mean? Do you get my sense of humour? If you don't, we're probably on different planets and you don't trust me and I don't trust you. So probably it's good you stay out here on a trust basis. Yeah? Do you... Um, yeah, are we on the same page on things? Do we have the same... You know, are we at the same place? Yeah, I think, think we are. You can get very vulnerable with somebody very quickly if, there's, if somebody goes through your gates. The challenge for you is to work out what your gates are. Then you have... And gates at different levels of superficiality to the profound. And what I'd say is, then the people in here is where you really know that you're wholehearted. You really know that you're safe. You really know that you're worthy. You really know that you're loved because they're the people who walk through those gates and tell you things like that. Don't let people in who don't tell you things like that. Does that make sense? Let's finish just by praying. Asking the Lord just almost for this season, what are the things that he's highlighting for you? Is there a situation where you know that you've just let somebody straight in because you thought you had to and actually that's being abusive and you need to guard your heart and put a gate in that, yeah, I'll trust you if. Lord, I pray for revelation in this room right now that you have the solution to every situation, every relational discord, every situation that is hard. And I pray for the gift of wisdom the spirit of wisdom just to fall on each of us, to know what it is to put the gate in place as to, as to where there needs to be trust, that we can then trust more. And Lord, we lift each of our lives to you. We lift our lives to you as we go from here, that you would be showing us the places that we can be vulnerable. Show us where there is a power in being real and honest. Show us the places where we need to go there first to set the temperature. Show us the places where we're called to be the thermostat rather than the thermometer and set a different temperature in the room. And more than anything, we lift you each of our places where we find worth. Lord, would you give us would you give us heart courage to be people brave enough to have difficult conversations, brave enough to be real, brave enough to initiate, brave enough to have that conversation, brave enough. And we know it comes from you. So Lord, be with us in this adventure of being vulnerable. In Jesus' name, amen.
Now, there's more to come from Mao in a second talk given two weeks later, where he's going to go into more depth about why, when and how to practice vulnerability as a life-giving habit. But first, he has a few more words about Brenny Brown, whose talks and writing about vulnerability are very highly recommended. Her research is around pain, shame and vulnerability. And what she looked at was why are some people whole? Why are some people wholehearted was the phrase that she came up with. And her conclusion of why some people were wholehearted, she said those people who... Um, who who really thought they were worthy of love and belonging, um, believed they were worthy of love and belonging. That was the key thing of her, of her research. Those who actually knew that they were loved and belonged, believed that they were worthy of being loved and belonging. They knew they were worthy of it as they were, with all their gunk, with all their shame, with all their stuff, with all their mistakes, they were still worthy of love and belonging. Isn't that good news? There's so much good news of Jesus in her talk, I can't tell you. And then we looked a little bit at the end of, yes, it's really important to be, uh, to be vulnerable, and what we're going to do today is get more into the practicals of, well, what does that mean? Because we do want to be vulnerable, but also it, it's not something that uh, is safe. It needs safeguards. It needs safety valves. Um, and we looked just to finish at the scripture that says, guard your heart, because from it everything else flows. Um, and it was just the idea that we still need guards somewhere around our heart. And that there are guards to varying degrees of, of who we are. And the problem in some of our journeys and the stories of our lives is some people, we've let all the way in to the most intimate places of our lives who we shouldn't have done. We didn't put any guards in place. And others, we've made it, we've kept on the outside. And do you see what I mean? Some people we've let all the way in when we shouldn't, and others who we could have connected with, we've kept far away. Does that make sense? So we're going to get practical today. We're going to get practical at outworking this as to what does it look like to actually live into being vulnerable, both in terms of building bridges and guarding your gates. So that's all we're going to do, is look at the idea of what in our relationships, in our connections, what does it mean um, building bridges or, uh, or guarding uh, and guarding gates. Make sense? Good. Great. Well, this is the why. If you want to know the why as we get practical, this is a quote. Um, why do we bother to do this? Why do we bother is vulnerability is connection as a result of authenticity. Have you ever noticed how often stand-up comedians or um, uh, people who are funny, often the things that they're saying are actually quite embarrassing or sad? There's something very humorous 
in the, in the, uh, in the embarrassing. It can be, it's, it's actually, um, normally where there's a bit of pain, there's also a bit of humor. And a lot of stand-up comedians, I actually read a, a, a treatise by Billy Connolly on this, on why being funny is actually sharing some of your most, most authentic hardships. Because people connect with the pain. People connect with the pain. So the goal is connection as a result of authenticity, whether you're funny about it or not. Yeah? So what's the first thing? What, what do those connections look like? Well, let's start with Jesus as an example. What did he do? Well, when he sent out the 12 and the 72, he was sending out his followers to make connections of relationship. Yeah? The shortest version of that is Mark 6. Um, you can read it in Luke 9 and 10, Matthew 10, or Mark 6. And when he sends out the 12 and the 72, um, this is what he says. As you go out to make connections, go and say shalom, peace, to the people who, who you meet. We all meet people and we all spend our times, uh, send our time saying shalom. Um, shalom is effectively, hi, how are you doing? Deep spiritual connection of all that I am join with you. Fancy it? Is what we're really saying. Yeah, is the Hebrew shalom word. Deep spiritual, profound connection. The spiritual truth of who I am. The peace of who I am. I could connect with you. Do you want to connect with me? And um, what Jesus said to his, uh, his disciples was, if when you say, I'm here... What are you going to do about it? If, if they receive you, then stay with them. He actually says in one of the other versions, stay with them until the kingdom comes. Until God's rule and reign comes in that relationship. Yeah? But if, if they don't welcome you, then wipe the dust from your feet and he actually says, be rude to them. Say it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you on the day of judgment. That's a different way to do friendships, isn't it? To kind of say, I'm here. Do you connect with me? Do you, do you like me? And, uh, and if you don't, I urinate in your general direction. <laughs> and, uh, or whatever. Stops Christians being doormats. Of, but actually says, go, go with nothing... So in other words, people don't like you for all the stuff that you bring. It's just, do they like you for who you are? Don't go with anything extra. Just be there for, do people like you for who you are? And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Now, he's actually saying they went as servants. You could either be a free man or a slave or a servant. A servant was somebody who was dependent on the people they were serving for a bed that night. And Jesus sent out the 1272 as servants. And he says, when you go there, say peace to them, yeah? And if they receive you, great. If, you, if they don't, this is the crucial thing for me, if they don't welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and go somewhere else. In the other versions, it's actually eat what is set before you. Um, be, even though you're going there to serve them, expect them to serve you. So I think there's an acronym here, WLS, Welcome, Listen, Serve. 
Who welcomes you? Who listens to you? And who serves you? They're the people that God gives you. The people that God gives me and the people that God gives you are those who welcome you, listen to you, and serve you. And the amazing thing is they're all different. And it may be that somebody doesn't welcome me, but they might welcome you. Do you see what I mean? So looking at where our connections are, it's who welcomes us, who listens to us, and who serves us. Some bible people call these people people of peace because you extended your peace to them and there was a connection. I think it's just friends. It's just people who connect with you, welcome you, listen to you. But Jesus seems to say these are important These are the people where you're supposed to stay and go deeper until the kingdom comes. Because even Jesus, as you go to these different levels, he had a 1, a 3, a 12, a 72, and crowds. (laughs) Yeah? Jesus had people that he related to in crowds. He had a 72 that he related to more superficially but spiritually and in real life, he had a 12, a 3, and a 1. See what I mean? Greater and greater levels of intimacy and safety within that. If you're going to build bridges, the first thing is, um, do these people welcome you, listen to you, and serve you? Don't be vulnerable with people who aren't. Do you get it? We spend a lot of our time, I think, thinking we're supposed to be vulnerable with the wrong people. People who who actually aren't receiving us, aren't listening to us, aren't serving us, aren't welcoming us. So the first thing, the very first gate, I think, out here of connection is, does that person actually like you? I've joked around, for me, one of the first gates is, um, do you get my sense of humour? Because if you don't, we're probably not going to do that well. <laughs> I had a case this week where I was talking to Sienna and said, yeah, somebody sent me a text. And I, thought, I, read, I read it and thought it was quite funny. And I replied, and then I don't think they realised what I read and thought was funny. <laughs> because they just went, he's just texted back something weird. <laughs> you know, the first things. Does somebody get get your sense of humour? Yeah? Then is there greater... um, But the goal, I think, is deeper and deeper levels of connection. Let me move on to another scripture, just for the sake of time, which I think is the ultimate one around the people we're supposed to go most deep with. The ones we're supposed to go most deep with. Who we're most to build the closest relationships with. And that is those that we really share our story with. One of the best things that, uh, and this is a thing I'd really encourage you to do as a small group. So if you want to get to know somebody, if you want to see authenticity, find out their life story. You can do it really quickly. Um, in, in the web resources, there is an idea for small groups on how to do that. How, little checkpoints of how to hear somebody's life story. But just to hear what, what's happened to somebody is the most amazing thing. You know, um, I used to run a discipleship year uh, in Sheffield, and 
it was, it was an amazing season of our life. We had 40 vibrant uh, young guys saying, we're going to give a year to lay foundations of what God can do in our lives. And we'd get into smaller groups to hear one another's life story. And the first person who got up to tell their story said, I could tell you uh, that I was... Um, you know, where I was born and who my parents were and whether I grew up with faith or not and what happened later in my life and where I've come to now. But actually, I want to tell you about the most key moment of my life that's defined me. And that was in the first week at university. As I arrived at university, I was homosexually raped. And as he said it, the whole room went, like you did. <laughs> Whoa. And suddenly, the temperature in the room went much, much higher. And I tell you, I couldn't be more thankful to that young man because he was a better thermostat for that year than I was. He set the temperature of trust and vulnerability. He was safe enough in that room. He decided it was safe enough in the room that he could share quite vulnerably and still be loved, and still be valued, and still be appreciated for who he was, worthy of love and belonging. And hearing that story allowed everybody else to be honest about theirs. Do you know what I mean? If you want to get vulnerable and real, I think the first thing you have to think about in each of your settings are, are you a thermometer or a thermostat? In terms of the temperature of the room, and it's very easy for us to keep the, the temperature, you know, just kind of comfortable. But actually, if it's a safe place, and it's supposed to be a safe place, then who's the thermostat? Who's making it more vulnerable? Who's making it more real? And I tell you, the number one thing I've learned through, I've now heard hundreds and hundreds of people's stories. I can tell you two things that I know from every single story I've ever heard is that bad stuff happens to people, but God is good. Amen. Bad stuff happens, God is good. And if you want real connection where you're seeing God at work, then to go from the journey of, of to hear, wow, you've, you've lived through that, bad stuff happens, but God is good. I've got a friend of a pastor of a church in a nightclub in Leeds, and he's done it for about 20 years, and he told me the greatest theological job he's done with his community of clubbers is to take them from understanding that God is good, but bad stuff happens to, because they're clubbers, they don't say bad stuff. Um, they say a shorter word. Uh, they, uh, God is good, and bad stuff happens to, bad stuff happens, God is good. That's the 10-year theological journey he think they went on. Because it was actually, God is good, yeah, but bad stuff happens. And that's what we're defined by. But after 10 years, it's no, bad stuff happens, but God is good. And that's what we're defined by. Get it? So, as you get to these more... So the first thing of... Uh, do people welcome you, listen to you, serve you? Do you hear their stories? Do you get to up the temperature, or are you the thermometer? Or can you be a thermostat to get, create a more real environment? And then this, this scripture, I'd say, is the scripture, uh, the 1 John 1 
Scripture is the scripture around experience of vulnerable, safe places. Uh, this is what the writer of this letter says. What we, in these first four verses, he basically says, what we've experienced, what we have seen concerning the word of life, what we have touched, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what we've seen with our hands, touched with that, we've all seen with our eyes, blah, 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 touched with our hands. This is what we proclaim to you. And as we proclaim it to you, you have fellowship with us. So what we've experienced gives us, when we tell it to you, it gives us connection with you. Yeah, And we've got connection, fellowship with the Father and the Son. And we're writing this to make our joy complete. And this is what they say. So our experience of what we've experienced, we share with you. They then unpack in the next verses. This is the message we've heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Great. Keep going. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Keep going. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in, if we say that there is no darkness in us, we lie and there is no truth in us. It's one of the stronger verses in the Bible. If you say that there's nothing you struggle with, if there's no place of difficulty, if there's no place where you are wrestling with darkness, then you're lying, says the Bible. But in response to that darkness, if we say we have, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When we bring things out into the light, darkness disappears. I had a friend who was in a relationship that he really loved and he thought he was going to marry her. And he was really hoping to marry her, but he knew that she'd come from a very tough background that she'd never shared with him. And she'd never shared what was... what. There was this, obviously an area that was, was closed off to him. And he was, how can we get married if this is the case? And it was, well, go for it. Ask. Talk about it. And he said, the number one thing I know is that you can, you can point to when things come into the light, Jesus gets hold of them. Monsters in the bedroom cupboard, monsters in the bedroom disappear when the bedroom light goes on. Yeah? The fears and the worries, the, the, all the things that we think are going to affect us disappear when the light comes on. So are you ready to bring things into the light? So he, he met with her and, they, uh, and, and he, he called me afterwards and said, Oh, it was nothing. I was so, my mind was playing tricks on all the horrible, awful things it could be. And it was, it was like bringing it into the light. And then it was like, and the number one thing he said was, you're so right, Mal. Monsters disappear. It's very rare somebody says that to me. Ask any member of my family. But on this one occasion, somebody, that's why I remember it. Um, he said... Monsters, you're right, monsters disappear when you turn the bedroom light on. Monsters disappear. When you bring things into the light as he is in the light, 
So here's the idea, is that we have different levels of bridge of relationships as we build relationships, yeah? And we're called to have connection. And here is the bridge of connection, yeah? Does that make sense? Can you see it yet? <laughs> um, and that bridge, the problem is, is that you can't put a two, you can put a car over that bridge of information. And if that car is two tons, and it's a two ton load bridge, then it will work, yeah? Where it won't work is if it's a 10 ton bridge, a 10 ton uh, car over a two ton bridge. So it's working out how you invest in your 10 ton bridges, your bridges of real trust relationship. So it's not that you overshare or inappropriately say things, it's where you bring things into the light. And I'll tell you one of the ways you know if that person is somebody that you can be really accountable with, is that when you say the thing that you want to bring into the light, you know it's a bridge that's stronger if you know that what they're going to say is not, oh, uh, I struggle with that as well, or you perv, or that's, you know, I don't get it. But rather what they say is, the blood of Jesus purifies you from everything that falls short. The kind of safe relationships that I think the Lord wants us to have here, these safe relationships, and I recommend the book on the website, um, but this book, Safe People, is really good on all of this. Who are the people that we let into the places where we turn the lights on and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And then we get right. And then we get right. And then we go back to those relate. Can you go back to the verses? Just go to the next verses from 1 John 1. He does say, we need this. We really need this. Because if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We need other people to bring things into the light with so the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. We live next door to a Catholic church. So we see guys going in all the time. And the way that their church has developed that idea of bringing things into the light is doing it in a cubicle, not in a trusted relationship. Well, actually, we know our Catholic priest. He's an amazing man. He is a trusted relationship to them. And the thing that he says to them is, the blood of Jesus purifies you from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Keep going. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all that isn't right. So what's the happening in this? What's the goal? Is that it brings purity to our lives, to our minds, to our relationships. That good? Come on. So if that's building bridges, building bridges is... Who do you connect with? How do you get to know them better? And the ones that you trust the most, you let into the most intimate places. 
And then those most trusted relationships are the ones where we see Jesus' kingdom come and everything come into the light, which I just think is, isn't that good news? But um, the other side is, uh, is guarding your gates. Building the bridges is for the safe people. Guarding gates is with the, is the, is with the ones where we're not so sure. And I'm kind of joking about you know, humor or whatever, but some of them are really important. And the thing I love about this idea of a gate is a gate gives you the authority and the power to say, no, you're not coming in. If you, so um, I had a work situation where I knew some guys that I'd worked with in the past um, had decided to speak uh, really badly of me. And I knew they had. Um, and it caused, but I didn't really know what they'd done. I just thought, you guys, I'll leave you to it, sort of thing, and withdrew from what was going on. Um, and then a guy contacted me and said, uh, he, was, he was obviously really apologetic, and said, I know, he said, we were caught up in this, in this vector of bonkersness, and I'm really, really sorry, and um, would you forgive me? Yeah? And I said, yeah, of course I will. Yeah, he, he really wanted my forgiveness. And then he said, will you work with me? It was actually out of guilt, I think. He wanted to, to give me, he's very, he was very rich, and he wanted to give me something that would make a lot of money. And uh, I didn't know what to do with this, because the idea of a lot of money was a good idea. <laughs> and yet, I wasn't sure if I trusted him. Because I knew that Jesus said, forgive somebody, and I knew that that was actually to do with my heart. But just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean you're supposed to trust them. And I had to work out what my, what my, my gate was with this guy. So I said to him, all right, I'll, um, of course I forgive you. But if you want to work with me, I want you to, what's the gate? And I, I spent ages thinking about, what well, actually, I feel really weak in this situation because if I go and work with them, all the embarrassment and all the stuff that was said all comes up again. But how will it not do that? And so I said to him, okay, if you tell me, I want to know, I'd like to meet with you for one evening when you arrange it and you tell me exactly what was said and to whom. And then it's done. Yeah? But you're a very busy man and very rich and flying all over the world. You've got to make that time. If you make that time, I'll work with you. Yeah? That made me feel like I now have some authority to know whether I trust him to go from here to here or not. Do you see? But beforehand, it was just, I've got to forgive him and be nice to him. He didn't, uh, he never organized that evening. And I felt great about it because I felt like I had some authority because I decided where the gates were. Do you see what I mean? With your difficult relationships, with the people you're not sure if you're supposed to let in, and some of the hardest ones are family because family, I think we often think we've got to let them in the whole way. Well, obviously, family that make us feel worthy of love and belonging, yes. But people where we felt betrayed or let down, I'm not sure. Let me give you a crazy example of somebody in the Bible who was let down by family. Um, you probably know him most through 
depending on your generation, Philip Schofield, uh, Jason Donovan, or Stephen Gately, of uh, Joseph and his Technicolored dream coat. Uh, I think I've seen all three of, of those. Um, and the story of Joseph is, is 13 chapters of, um, of, of Genesis, Genesis 37 to 40. What really fascinates me is five of those chapters aren't telling the musical story of, um, of you know, I close my eyes and all that. We've got to, do you remember the bad, good days in Canaan, the gayest the Bible has seen? No one comes to visit now, we'd only eat them anyhow. And how I loved his entertaining dreams. <laughs> I, I was expecting at least a few people to go, those Canaan days, how did they know? Where have they gone? No. <laughs> so we get to that point, and Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. That is betrayal. Betrayal of the most extreme kind. Yeah? And they've told his father that they're dead. So Joseph is someone who's been betrayed. When Jacob finds that his brothers have, uh, that these guys are starving, um, there's, la- there's stuff in Egypt, he sends the brothers to Egypt, and there they encounter the brother they've told their dad is dead. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. This is the bit that fascinates me. Joseph didn't trust them, and he wasn't supposed to. Yeah, he'd been a bit sort of young and enthusiastic with his gift and probably been an absolute nightmare to live with, with his cockiness of, I hear God, and let me tell you, my destiny is going to be so much greater than yours, and you're all going to bow down to me. Quite hard to live with, but still not worthy of betrayal. Still not worthy of betrayal. So then when betrayal happens... He recognizes them immediately, but he puts a gate in place. He doesn't reveal himself, and instead, what he does is he tests them. And over the next four chapters, we get the unpacked story of where Joseph puts in wise boundaries and gates. That he puts the cup in his brother's sack, who is his replacement for the affections of his father. In other words, the brother that all of the other ones could now be jealous of, Benjamin. Yeah? And when he puts the cup in the sack, um, when it's discovered, he, they still don't, uh, he, he, he again, in still having hidden themselves to them, he comes and says, uh, Right, you know, we're going to have to leave, you're going to have to leave him here with me. And he's testing the brothers. And the brothers in this moment, say, uh, um, Reuben, the eldest, says, this would kill our dad if, if we did this. Don't, don't leave Benjamin here. Take me instead. Take me instead, because my father, I've already seen how much misery he's gone through. And take me instead. And once Joseph saw that his brother had repented, now had integrity, and had gone through the gate, he revealed himself. He, he, he showed who he was. Actually, the first thing he did was tell everybody to leave, and then he wept so that everybody in the community heard him weeping. And once he'd wept, he, he showed who he was. 
to them. Do you see? Who is it? Some of us, we need to put in wise boundaries, even around our family, to not allow them to... If they're safe people, of course, but what are the wise gates? I say this to you as somebody who never put in wise enough gates with my own family, uh, with my own parents. I've got a great mum, and I I had a not very good dad. Uh, My father was an alcoholic. He... uh, he, he was a philanderer. He was, he was not a good man in lots and lots of ways. Um, and I realized, I think, it was only when our eldest daughter was born, we needed to redefine our relationships. Because I didn't trust him, but I kept on letting him all the way into my heart and then being hurt. Yeah? And I thought, well, that's okay for me, but I can't that, allow that to happen to my wife and to my kids. I haven't been sensible in putting gates in place with, my, with my, myself. And, but I was way more motivated. It was only having children, to be honest with you, that made me go, it's almost like I can cope with me being, being a bit abused. I can't cope with my kids being abused. So um, I went to see him and I put in uh, boundaries. For the first time, it had always been he'd set the gates. And rather than, you know, it's like, we're going to gather like this, we're going to gather like that. And it was, there are things that I'm not happy about, about how these things work. If, if I was safe, it wouldn't be a problem. But I'm not safe with you. You are not safe in a number of ways. And in these ways you aren't safe, I've, I'm suggesting a gate of how, of how you can prove yourself to us. Because you've kept saying to my mother that you've changed but we've never actually seen it. So here's the gate. Um, you know, you can call us, you can come visit, you can do this, you can do that. Uh, you know, we'd love you to come to us, but it's got to be on our terms, not on yours. Yeah? But, and until you're willing to do that, I can't cope with anything else. And um, again, the amount of freedom there was to me in that moment. I think that was the day I became a man. It was that I actually stood for what I believed in more rather than just a boy. Because actually, and the story doesn't uh, end well. We talked a lot about change and what real repentance was. And you could say that you were sorry, but the issue was if you've changed. And I can forgive you when you're wrong, but if you say you're sorry and haven't changed, you are not a safe person. And if you're not living into change and showing me evidence of how you're changing. So I put gates into my father's life that he never walked through. From the day that I walked away having said, they're the gates, um, then uh, I never saw him again before he died. He died still in not a great place. But I think I had to do it to protect myself and protect my family. Because we are called to be vulnerable. But we're called to be vulnerable to set the right temperature of the kingdom coming. Not to be vulnerable and allow the wrong temperature and the wrong thing into the most intimate places. So if you haven't heard from this, guard your safe places... Do you see what I mean?
Shall we pray? Just take a moment. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has been just, just dropping things on your shoulder of the things that are, are your situation and your place. Holy Spirit, we know these are real things and deep things. And we know that you are the giver of all wisdom. And we lift before you each of our lives and each of our situations. Lord, I pray for those here who are wanting more places of vulnerability and connection, of places of authenticity. And I speak over each of your situations where you seek greater authenticity, greater bridges built, greater reality, greater Jesus bringing purity and things coming into the light. I pray for the right people and the right opportunities. I pray for your eyes to see who they are and those connections to be fully realized. I pray for the kingdom to come as... as as heart meets with heart, as spirit meets with spirit. I pray for wisdom around vulnerability hangovers where we've shared and it's, it's almost left us more feeling vulnerable. I pray for us as community that where people are vulnerable with us, we would know how to look after those who've, been, who've got a hangover, who've, who's been vulnerable and can affirm and bless and love on those people. And Lord, we pray for our places of those you've reminded us where we shouldn't just let them in um, when they're not safe. Give us wisdom of who we need to keep at particular gates with the option to come through those gates. And in the spirit of vulnerability as we have a close relationship here. Let me confess to you that this is where the recording ended. It was probably not the end of Mal's prayer, was it? So let's conclude by asking God to guide us into wisdom with our relationships as we look to handle gates and guardedness the way Jesus did. To grow in vulnerability too, the way that Jesus did. And to practice this stuff for real. So it's not just ideas in our heads, but life coming from our hearts, which are being shaped by Jesus for his glory and in his name. Amen.